Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad Allen, special guest Peter from the Chicago Film Discussion Group Meetup. We are talking about phase two of films of Terrence Malick. If you haven't had a chance, feel free to take a look at part one, where we talk about his films uh, from all the way up to The New World from Badlands, and even have a little bit of discussion upon his um, unproduced works and some of his, and his early short films. For now, we're going to go start with a film that could scarcely have a higher scope and a higher ambition and talk about how potentially successful was his film from 2011, The Tree of Life. The Tree of Life is an examination of a family of three brothers and their parents in 1950s Texas. One of the brothers, now grown, is, uh, deals with some painful events from the family's history. His look back not only looks back from to the uh, history of the family, but goes and expands its scope to even look at how the creation of the universe and the earth itself, <laughs> how well does that grand experiment work out? It is the most Malik of all Maliks. And and that's a good thing because I was about to, that's my follow up question. No, no, it's a it's it's a very good thing because it's it's a culmination of his interests and possibly next to Days of Heaven the most visually rich of his palettes. And so he combines, like you mentioned in the introduction, all these elements that if if they were not so expertly put together could become a mess but here he's working at the top of his form and, and the result is amazing yeah this this is often marked as or listed as his career defining achievement i think at least in the last part of his career if not for his career in its entirety it's not that for me but it's maybe a half notch below it mm-hmm. this, this is a great great movie I, I mean, honest to God, it pulls off an origin story for man's place in the universe. Yeah. What kind of, what, how, how can a movie achieve that? And yeah. like you said, I mean, putting the pieces together in an expert way that could have failed 18 different ways, yeah. you know, just in the first half hour probably. Yeah. And it doesn't misstep. It yeah. works entirely. This is like, right, I mean, we're talking about a film that has, during the tragic moment of this family's, uh, in this family's life, one person says, God, he, she, they plead to God and say, why did this happen? And it leads to the biggest flashback of all time. <laughs> but, but we're prepared for it because we already, the, 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 the beginning of the film starts on a quote from the book of Job. And uh, so there's already kind of this larger uh, template put on things before we get to the intimate story of the family. And, you know, the, the, the question is asked, why is there injustice? Why is there suffering? I mean, these are big universal questions. And so in such a ballsy move, Malik decides to provide a universal answer. Um, right, or maybe show the value and the range and the scope of the question. This is a case where Malik, who in a career has shown his like he is attuned to trying to find the grand statement, the epic visual display, and the 
tiniest, most intimate detail can also reveal just a tremendous amount of emotion and feeling. It starts with the most elemental image ever, like this kind of aurora borealis candle-like wafting ring that was brought in by Douglas Trumbull, the legendary special effects um, uh, artist. And he was, I believe, being brought out of retirement thanks to the um, request by Malick. But, but before it sounds too much like a science fiction film or a science film, the heart of this movie is the, the human story of this family. And we just have, again, some great acting from Brad Pitt, from Jessica Chastain, from the young uh, child actors, and they're given room to give their performances. And I think, you know, there's always a lot of great actors in Malick, but the best Malick movies are the ones where he gives them space to really deliver full-blooded performances. I totally agree. If Jessica Chastain doesn't nail those scenes in the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the movie, we're not going to care about that ballsy move to the origin of the universe, right? right. The first part of this movie is is steeped in the death of the of the middle brother. I mean, it, take, it takes a little while for you to figure out exactly who has passed on, but what comes through immediately is the loss felt by Chastain's character and Pitt's character to an extent. And to me, this this there's an exchange in this section that sets up the movie perfectly where um, she's talking with, I, I believe, her mother, and she says he's in God's hands now. And just Chastain's character replies that he was always in God's hands. Yeah. And the rest of the movie is trying to, is searching and seeking to figure out how can this God that gave us this also take it away from us, and how do I feel at peace with that? And that kind of heady philosophical point of view won't mean all that much if we don't care and I care about the characters in this movie Definitely, and the uh, the third rung is uh, Sean Penn as the uh, grown up version of the oldest child who who we're going to follow, and he is living a uh, dreary, unhappy life as a uh, successful architect, and we see him in his glass monstrosity creation that serves nothing but to really dehumanize everyone in it. It is filmed in a way that it's very, very propulsive. The camera's always like moving forward and pushing, and the buildings of the uh, city environment that Sean Penn has to navigate through is is always enroaching, or always the the grids of the city are closing in on him. That sense of ever ongoing confinement is just gets bigger and bigger in Sean Penn's in Sean Penn's world, and even his home life. The camera's always twisting, moving in and out of rooms, and, and, and Sean Penn and his wife or his spouse are moving along like so that you sometimes see them and sometimes don't. It shows a person like out of joint. His very, his very sense of himself is out. 
by showing like Jessica Chastain's honest emotion and the and the brokenness of Sean Penn's character, and then you get the question of why did this all happen, and then you start from creation, go through this tableau of like just the basic particles of the universe and galaxies and planets, and they for- and then life gets formed, and then a family gets settled. And then first one child, then the second, then the third. Because you just get image after image after image, and it almost feels like if you do like hit fast forward or skip on a person's life or a universe's life, you just get this. You would just get these brief glimpses, and you don't know where the playhead goes. <laughs> you just get like just the, the the moment of like clutching a tiny baby's hand, like the glint of a mobile in the light, the the sound of a sprinkler, just. All these moments are just get imbued with such great potent to it that that is treated on equal footing with the magma eruptions that you see just five minutes before. been talking throughout the whole first half about what a visual master Malik is and his way with nature and and sunlight and how he composes these uh, visual shots. Now he's doing this with special effects showing space and, and dinosaurs and just the creation of the world in lesser hands. This might seem jarring, but but Malik makes it impressive as a set piece on its own and fits it in with the whole. Yeah, the the transitions in and out of that sequence are really amazing. Like the the transition into it is from Jessica Chesting's like wandering and expressing the sadness, and then it transitions into the family's life. Yeah, I, I think the main yeah. the main part of the sequence that everyone talks about is the dino. I don't know what do you call it, the dinosaur mercy scene. <laughs> where right. it, it's really interesting how you read that. Uh, to me. What it symbolizes is that there's potential for cruelty in us and potential for mercy in us. And obviously, you know, the, the, the scene I'm where I'm talking about is, of course, the one where there's a one dinosaur has fallen and is, you know, near death, and another comes along and presses its like paw or whatever yeah. foot on its neck, like ready to end its life, and yeah. instead kind of almost caresses it and then leaves and lets it live. And to me, like, that is so interesting to say that we're wired to be predators, but we have the potential for mercy in us, too. Yeah. And then the the theme expands from there. I also read that scene, though, as connecting more directly uh, to the story of the family, because I think that the... uh, Because there were three little dinosaurs. Right, right. And the son who, as we'll discuss, has a very fraught relationship with his father, I think he symbolically envisioned him as the dinosaur on the ground and his father uh, stepping on him. 
which as you kind of see their relationship throughout the movie, and you're seeing it from from the son's point of view, is this kind of feeling of being overpowered by, by his, his father. That dinosaur interaction, though, like, it's kind of a fulcrum of the movie in a lot of ways, and I can see how if someone looks at that scene and just says, it's a continuation of Malick's deal that nature is good and, oh, why did humanity go ruin things? I can totally see how that, like, can kind of is a diminishment on it. Like, like the way I take it, though, is actually I, I'm a little more abstract than how you guys did. Because, and this is for me, personally, I find it just striking that, that when the dinosaur does not crush the other one's head and just leaves, I am, like put in a state where I don't know what happened. I don't get any explanation. I don't find any answer in the movie as to why that happened. And the central question just overpowers me in the sense of saying, what is that? What is that action? That is the question that I guess is Malik is striving for and is something that like that I feel at that moment. Like, why does that behavior go that way? You know? And what I think he does brilliantly in Tree of Life is he takes that sense and moves it to the family. It's like as these, as these kids grow up, they eventually learn on the different levels of like, you know, pain and suffering and like conflict amongst each other. The le- and this is an education like on such a pure level of just growing up, feeling like growing up, just learning that your parents are not these idolized godlike figures that they have their flaws and that you they they have conflicts with each other that you go and like have conflicts with your siblings that you learn this kind of release of this darkness in yourself i think some of the, i i disagree with only a little bit of that because i think the mother is an angelic figure to say the least i think that you know they make a point of the difference between grace and nature yeah and very much the father represents nature and the mother represents grace which i just want to point in that like this is a level of sophistication that i feel malik has advanced since mm-hmm. the thin red line I think Thin Red Line was a little more unambiguous that nature was pretty wonderful. But here he makes nature in opposition to something for grace. So I think mm-hmm. it's a different, it's at least a different take. Well, right, I, but, I, but how do we uh, show grace? And in the case of Tree of Life, we show it in a completely Freudian way where the, the young boy completely worships his mother she is shown at one point uh floating in the air yeah. in in a homage to uh tarkovsky's uh scene similar scene in the mirror we get to see her as something perhaps a little more than a human I, I agree and i the the grace versus nature thing is almost laid out thesis statement like at the beginning of the movie it's in done in voiceover and I, I, I disagree with you a little bit, Aldous, because I think that that same dichotomy is in the third, thin red line. Mm-hmm. There, it's more just like how, like how does that lead, like in a war setting. Here, it's like a family setting, and throughout the movie, like you know, the kids when the, the when they're younger, the oldest brother, Sean Penn's character as a younger person, is that he is very much drawn to the mother, and she's idealized in this way. As he grows older, he almost his nature comes out more. 
uh, and he learns to he'll destroy things. He hurts animals. Mm-hmm. There's a nice echo to the dinosaur sequence when at one point, at this point in the film, he basically hates his father. His father is working underneath the car, and it, it's jacked yes. up. So like now, great point. He, now, now he's on top in the same way the dinosaur was, where he walks by the jacked car, and it, you can read in the characters that eyes and, and just his body language that he thinks about pulling that jack out and crushing right, his father yeah. underneath the car but he doesn't but he the movie is basically pondering like how is that in my nature to consider it yes and how do i get past it and like how are both these things here if like god has created this world that's supposed to be good yep you know and, and mm-hmm. that and i love just kind of that the way that scene echoes you know, the earlier scene we were talking yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, obviously Malik has, through his career, is really key on looking at these details, just looking at the, the tiniest detail. And as I think, I hope we've been able to elaborate how you've been showing the smallest detail. But here, oh my God, it's firing on all cylinders for me because almost every detail, especially during the, um, the scenes with the family in the 50s, inform the characters, inform the relationships, and inform the kids' growing like appreciation of a complex, nuanced world. Like that treatment on the father is just so psychologically rich. Just and in just the smallest ways, like the way Brad Pitt's hand holds the back of the child's head. Mm-hmm. And it's a comment a comforting gesture. It is part of that, but it's also a gesture of control. And when you say great performances, this is, to me, Brad Pitt's just finest hour. I'm literally flabbergasted and shocked by how well he does and and how insightful he is on it. They give him uh, such such good motivation. Uh, He is a, a failed musician, somebody who thought he had greatness in himself as an artist, you know, it becomes kind of like a mini death of a salesman uh, situation yeah. as, as we follow his character and his realization that, you know, his dreams now have to be lived out through his children, but because of the generation he's in, because of the way he was brought up, because of, of the self-loathing that he has to deal with, he believes in this very tough love way of of raising the kids that from from the kids point of view seems to uh, border on on cruelty yeah. but we never we never aren't aware that he wants what's best for his family and that as another callback to the thin red line i think the dichotomy between the mother and the father in in uh tree of life echoes the dichotomy between the nick nolte character and the elias coteus character in the thin red line, whereas the Nick Nolte character is very much, <laughs> yeah, very, right. mu- very much like the father in the Tree of Life, and the Elias Coteus character is very much like the mother, like the considerate of the men, uh, the Nolte just pushing for the hill. And I think that you know, I mean, other war films have done that dichotomy too, but Malik here is very clearly springing from his personal life. Yeah. And if we haven't made it clear, like I, I think you know that the sequences in this movie of the family are very clearly autobiographical, and they're based in his his life yeah he was raised in texas and he's the oldest of three brothers and the middle brother had died when he was um uh, 19 years old and the brother in the in the movie is named rl 
but Malik's real life brother is initials is LR. Right. The circumstances of his brother's suicide uh, also kind of eerily uh, reflects upon this. Apparently, he was a uh, struggling musician himself, a gu- hmm. gu- guitarist, and and it was some of what I read indicated that his depression was as a result of you know his inability to uh, meet his own expectations as a musician. Yeah. In in terms of that level of in the musician side of things, there's just a, a phenomenal sequence. One of my favorites in the movie when you see the middle child playing the guitar, and then it cuts to Brad Pitt's expression on his face, and boy, it just says it all. Like you see totally through just this expression that he has pride for his son, and yet this kind of regret and kind of hatred a little bit that. That his kid, the kid may not be playing better than him now, but he has an opportunity that Brad Pitt knows is not available to him anymore. So he has this level of regret and disdain, but pride and love for his kid all happening on Brad Pitt's face is just so damn good. Yeah, and Pitt, you know, in so many of his films, he's like a... Accumulation of ticks yeah. and a caricature. He's usually and, great at playing crazy people. Yeah, and, and he does that well. I, I, I mean, I've enjoyed those performances, mm-hmm. but he is so understatedly great in this movie. Yeah. And there is such menace to him. You know, thankfully, my own dad is nothing like that. But, you know, I've definitely met teachers and other authority figures who seemed a lot like him. Mm-hmm. And he just has that that lack in his own life that he takes out on other people. Yeah. And it's so frightening, especially to a child. Like, I remember thinking, yeah. seeing other authority figures like that and being afraid of them. And to have someone like that in your own house. I mean, no wonder Malik's making movies about it years later. You know? <laughs> right, and, and right. We should mention just how good uh, this uh, young actor playing Jack is, uh, Hunter McCracken. I am not familiar with any of his other work, but one of the better child actor performances I've seen. He really connects attitude-wise with uh, with Sean Penn's performance. Yes. And, and, yeah. and there's, like, no question who's supposed to be the young Sean Penn. He's got those haunted eyes. Yeah. He's got that anger already. Yeah. And so that even before he starts to act out, you see that there's all kinds of potential uh, for trouble in in this kid. Yeah. And, again, i got to give uh, all credit to, to the young actor here. Yeah, and this is a progression on, on what Malik was doing with the New World because uh, young Jack's journey is similar to what young Pocahontas's journey is except it's younger and it hits more it hits more notes it has to deal on this burgeoning sexuality and mm-hmm. how that manifests itself you know and ha- it has to acknowledge like a, like a darkness within him and his own feelings upon where does that where does that come from and like and this level of like resentment slash competition with his brother, you know, like his brother who is a a more open, more I don't know if you can say it's maternal, but he's he's less prone towards uh, towards violence and and physical like physical ways of control and how uh, the young Jack deals with that. Is a robust and complex performance that we have from an actor who's 10 years younger than um than the actress from the new world. Right. 
Although, interestingly enough, uh, it's not Young Jack, but the middle brother who ends up being the first to openly defy uh, their father when at a dinner table, Brad Pitt basically says, I want you to keep silent throughout the meal unless you have something important to say. And then... He starts babbling, and 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 the kids basically goes, "You should be quiet," which yeah. obviously did not go over well. But that was then the the moment of rebellion, and then after that, you see Jack uh, willing to challenge authority yeah. more and more, and also you know maybe he feels kind of threatened by his brother because he keeps putting his brother in these kind of weird danger test right? situations yeah like where he asks him to uh put his finger in front of a bb gun <laughs> do you trust me right the do you trust me part is so interesting well and then that goes back to kind of like him discovering kind of the nature of his personality right like the yeah. and if the movie has a little bit of a fault i think that the jack young jack character seems pretty self-aware at some point like later in the movie he talks to his father and says I'm more like you than mom Mm. and like I don't know many you know 14 year olds or whatever who are contemplating that sort of thing at that point Mm. but I I think that's maybe one place where it's a slight misstep in the movie where rather than showing us that it has the character tell us that it's done a great job up to that point of just showing us those things the BB scene especially like that is that is so upsetting I think to me like you know and but what's great about the Tree of Life is that Malik is willing to show those dark characters of his young, basically his young self. Yeah. Right? And not only is he willing to go to those dark places, but he presents them in the way that feel authentic. Yes. The, the editing and the presentation of this movie, like it, there are a lot of quick edits. They almost feel like snippets of memory. That the way memories would hit you is the way they're depicted in the film. Yes. And that just creates such an emotional connection to the character mm-hmm. is one of the ways that a connection is built. And that's the thing that, you know, I, I just, a couple of things like the, the playing in the DDT, seeing the handicapped man, yeah. um, seeing a man convulsing and like being rushed away. Yes. All of these little snippets of memory that then combine to build into the character we understand. Yes. And the progression is so, so well done. Like, I mean, it starts off idyllic with the with the brothers uh, carousing around the yard, but then very gradually their expansion of the world, like shows like the show that like sick people are here and prisoners and and uh, and destitute people and and it they become more prevalent the more the kids' viewpoint grow and change out there, you know, and and. And I, I cannot agree with you more, Peter, about how they, those intimate moments have, like, more than any other Malick film, have this just a level of emotional truth. It's like, yes, that's how it feels. That, and, and it's a gift for Malick to be able to combine these moments of emotional truthfulness. And right when you're thinking that, 
Then you get a glorious sequence of them, like, of the kids scampering around, like, a, on, a, on the brightest summer day you could ever imagine, you know? And then to juxtapose that with, like, these big images of, like, a waterfall where it looks like the water is descending right into the center of the screen itself, you know? And, and then as an audience member, at least for me, your appreciation of the grandeur of what life can be, of what the world can do, and the truthfulness of what the most personal thing can do become one in the same, not one in the same, part of a continuum. I think there's a, a, a few things technically he's doing to help make this uh, so much more powerful. For one, I'm pretty sure that this is probably the film with the least narration at all. I mean, it's there, it's definitely there, but it, it, it's, it's less omnipresent. And what is put in its place is this wonderful use of classical music. There have been powerful moments before. Ennio Morricone's score for Days of Heaven is masterful. Right. But here he's using the classics, and he's using them in ways that mesh so powerfully with, with like you described, that waterfall scene, yeah. which, which comes a, a, again and again, and it's just like... It's not obviously connected to the plot, but yeah. it's subconsciously connected. It, gives, it lends such a great emotional import to Sean Penn, both when he's wandering through the vast canyons of his um, city existence, and also in these moments near the end where he's wandering around these rocky outcroppings of of his... Where he exists spiritually, I guess that's a fancy way of saying it, right? Oh, oh yeah, I mean, I think that's very much his spiritual landscape, or however, whatever mm -hmm. phrase you want to put that's on That's a good it. way of putting it, the spiritual landscape. Yeah. Um, but one thing, I, you know, I don't think we've said the name Emmanuel Obeski yet, and we need to give that guy some credit, because, like, he's worked, uh, he started working, I believe, uh, The New World is his first collaboration yep. with Malik, and has continued on through everything he's done since. Mm -hmm. And I think the Tree of uh, tree of Life benefits from his eye and his camera yeah. tremendously. You know, this is, uh, I, I mean, he's won numerous Academy Awards for other films, but yeah, he's I, amazing, I, his work I, here is that's amazing. That's a really great, I mean, that's a really great point, because I think like one of the greatest films that also deal with like youthful experience and maturity is something that Luzbecki also did um, Itu Mama Tambien for the, Alfon the Alfonso Curion movie and that also has these feelings that you describe like just emotional truthfulness from like the smallest things that the people were doing and could that be something that like Luzbecki is a secret weapon that makes an already remarkable filmmaker put up to a different kind of level? Uh, maybe. 
not to diminish like other cinematographers who have worked with him. Uh, uh, John Toll on the uh, Thin Red Line is amazing as well. And we already talked about you know yeah. day, how beautiful Days of Heaven is. But I just think that like someone who's worked consistently with Malick, and there seem to be very few of those people yeah. who are capable mm-hmm. of sticking with them. And just the fact that their collaboration has been so amazing and so fruitful, you know, like yes. sh- shout out, man, that, that's impressive. Definitely. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to also note about the. The sense of commonality is that there's several moments where the where the young brothers are playing on a river. And in fact, there's one uh, similar moment a little later where um, the young Jack actually uh, breaks in or sneaks into a neighbor's house and like takes some lingerie, and then he is like has second thoughts and he just leaves it at the river. That looks like the same river that eons ago. A dinosaur was spared. Mm, that looks right. like it's framed the same. It goes at the same kind of angle. So I think it's meant to evoke that all sorts of things happen on this on this river, which is of course a great symbolic point of transition in and of itself. And then what we were talking on pure cinema, which is just these moments where like the actual cinematic image you're seeing before you just op- can even transcend what the story is. This is a really solid story, a very robust, complicated story, complex and nuanced story. Maybe Malick's most effective at pure narrative. Yes. But on top of all that, the brilliant images are coming at you like a slot machine hitting a jackpot. I mean, there are so many moments that are both creatively original and just brilliantly insightful. Like, one of my favorite ones is there's one where, like, kids are playing basketball, but you only see their shadows. Mm. And you just get that perfect feeling of, like, just the lost youth. It's like Plato's playground, (laughs) you know? And then there's a great sequence where, like, something's really troubling Sean Penn, and this tragedy is weighing on him, and it cuts to this shot of thousands and thousands of bats. They're forming like these clouds and these patterns, and the camera slowly pans around until you see the bats and the clouds and the reflection of a solitary building. And this just sense of menace and like isolation where this just cloud can form is just so great. It just conjures up these great feelings and sensations on there irregardless of the, the story at that point. But, but they do add to it. Right. And yeah. so many scenes featuring uh, Jessica Chastain have this quality, too, because she she is she does have this kind of magic about her. So the yeah. way she's filmed is is very unique. The uh, the swing comes back. Yeah. And and just the the way she is with her with her children, you know, creates a, a non-narrative emotional connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you want to go and like look at this film from a kind of like almost honestly on one of the most elemental levels, if you can get a lot of rewards from his use of light. I don't know of any film where light is such a great metaphor mm-hmm. for the grace, like the thing that inflames someone's soul or animates it. And how it shows, how it doesn't show, and plus ways to contain it. Malik is so on point throughout the movie of showing where light is coming from, where light is hidden, where light is contained within lamps and light bulbs. 
and like um, a pattern, and even his very famous motif of showing patterns in between the leaves. But in this movie, it all has intent. And like when, when like the brothers are over at their most confused, like there's a great scene when it's the middle of the night and they're pointing flashlights at each other, and the shadows are almost enveloping them completely. Only scattered light gets in. The way light goes and informs has never, I think, had a, such a great metaphoric sense as what Mal- Malik's able to do in The Tree of Life. One, one of my favorite scenes, or shots, I should say, kind of mirrors what you're talking about, is early in the movie when the brother, you, they're figuring out the brother has died, and I think it's a Chastain character looking up at like a spiral chapel where there's light yes. where there's light coming through and you see all this stained glass and light coming through. It looks like a spiral. Yes. And it almost feels like, you know, you say like a death can send someone spiraling. Right. And it almost looks like, you know, she's looking up and wondering in the spiral going down this hole, even though she's looking upward, of yes. like trying to understand her feelings towards that source of light and life she thinks is up there mm-hmm. that's brought down this pain on her yeah. a- and that sequence alone just I love that spiral and kind of the spiraling feeling yet looking up at the uh, alleged source of you know, what's come down you mm-hmm. know? yeah and then and then Malik like also for those people who really appreciate like a director how a director can frame a shot they've a lot to love in Tree of Life on that as well because Malik has already had a reputation as a master of director composition, of like, I'm making exactly the right image that I want to do. But here, I actually see him, he's expanding his film vocabulary because the camera is sometimes static, but sometimes it's like really propulsive. Sometimes it's running at the frame. And and here's something that I found like that he does new, which fits the theme perfectly, is he his camera would do a pan up and down. Like the camera, sometimes when the young child would be like have an argument with his father, the camera j- dramatically moves up and down in curves to literally show the change of perspective as it's happening and to show how chaotic that could be. It it's, it's just thrills me to no end to see a guy who had like a ton of laurels he could have sat on is trying to expand what he can do in this movie as well. And this would be the movie that, that to do it on because it's his most personal film. I don't, knowing how close it, it hews to his autobiography, I, I don't think there can be a doubt that, that this is the one he wanted to make his biggest statement on because, you know, after dealing with all the points in history he's he's dealt with, this is now his own story. And I like that, you know, he is willing to give himself or give the characters acceptance at the end. And I love that that's visualized. Like, you know, Sean Penn's been wandering in the desert throughout much of this movie. Mm -hmm. And then there's a very much a healing or finding peace at the end where he reaches the water's edge and then sees like his younger self basically lead him there. And he sees his parents and he sees uh, his brother as a young child. And it's very much a reconciliation. Yep. Just when you think the movie kind of has done its share of tricks, this, this ending That's right. is magnificent. It's a beach, but it's an otherworldly beach. Right. It's, it's, right. it's something that, that doesn't look of earth. It uh, looks like a, a purgatory of some kind. Or again, it could be an 
another one of Sean Penn, part of Sean Penn's mindscape. Right. Uh, but whatever it is, it's very alien. And then there's a wonderful catharsis in seeing all these characters yeah. from different timelines meet each other. And they're all from the time that Sean Penn is remembering, which is why I think you know, looking at it as, as an internal part of Sean Penn's psyche is what this uh, very mysterious scene is about. Yeah, and it even even concludes on just such a great um, elemental level with like Jessica Chastain getting finally some measure of peace by you know reconciling, finally being able to let go of the grief upon uh, her her um, son, and it's shown by like this wondrous shot of like her clasped hands opening and letting the light through, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a really a, a wonder to behold in that in that sequence and. And the ending just works great for me in that, like, you finally get a smile crack Sean Penn's face as yeah. he's leaving his, his office. And then that has that, that bridge, just a that shot on the bridge, like maybe with the sun starting to set. And then it cuts with that uh, final image, there, the image that actually started the movie. And this ambiguity, and but beauty brings it all like literally to a full circle like which is great that it makes like an unbroken shape mm-hmm. it's irregular but it's but it's unbroken one thing i would like to add for you guys if you get a chance check out the screenplay for this because as great as the movie is the screenplay actually has this extra couple of layers of depth to it we're going to post the link when we go and post for this um uh, podcast it's very possible that by reading it, you'll get an enhanced appreciation of what this movie does. Right, especially considering Malick's uh, filmmaking style. I haven't read it, but it, it, uh, it would seem to me that it would be very surprising if it wasn't a different experience than watching the film. Yeah, I, I'm very interested in Malick at the script level, because one thing in watching, uh, he has many films on the Criterion has put out now, and one thing that's mentioned in, on the extras for each of the films is that his scripts start off with a lot of writing, like there's a lot more dialogue, and basically his filmmaking process is to throw a lot of that out. And I would love to see what was there to start with that doesn't make it. What was there? Yeah. What was he trying to do? And how does that differentiate from the movie? I, I, I kind of wish there was like a, like a side-by-side almost for the extras. They don't have that, unfortunately. Yeah. But it's such an interesting idea just to see his process. to quote Douglas Adams, life, the universe, and everything, <laughs> where do you go from now? And I think that Malik is a filmmaker who is so dedicated towards asking the questions and following through on what those questions might mean 
that I think his next movie is about that. Where do you go? You go to the wonder. That's where you uh, Do the quote from uh, <laughs> the CSI Who song here. Yeah. <laughs> and you go to improvisation, which is what the next, uh, the rest of the narrative uh, Malik films we're going to talk about have in common. You know, we you know, we just talked about the richness of of, of a Malik script. But now, what happens when we don't have a script? We have a storyline, but we don't. We you know we have we we're, we have actors who are brought in now, uh, in, to uh, create the characters as they go along. And, and 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 the thing is, I don't know of any other director who mid into their career or late into their career decided to make this shift because you do have actors who directors who use improvisation you have john cassavetes you have uh, robert alban you have mike lay all these guys used improvisation as a tool from the beginning but now malik is adding that to his mix and and i think the the results are mixed (laughs) Yeah, and like in in To the Wonder, where he actually explores his some more autobiographical, but a little further along in his life, where he's the ostensible story or the framework of one it involves like a a couple who've uh, um, uh, Olga Kurienko playing um, uh, uh, Marina and Ben Affleck playing uh, Neil, who find a romance in Europe and they get married and move to. Um, Neil's workplace out in, uh, I believe, in Oklahoma. Yeah, it's, uh, I believe, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which, mm. if I trust the Wikipedia page, is actually where Malik grew up for part of his childhood. Oh, there you go. Very much keeping in his autobiographical, yeah. like, concerns. And and they're, like, the, they're the couple um, experiences from some strife trying to adjust to this kind of existence in Oklahoma compared to their like um, globe-spanning courtship, and this leads to a bit of a breakup, causing uh, Affleck's Neil to uh, rekindle a romance with a, a character uh, Jane, played by uh, Rachel McAdams, and consoling the couple is a um, a very very um, uh, not conflicted, but. Um, very um, angst-ridden priest played by Javier Bardem, who, when not consoling the couple, goes throughout the neighborhood and consoles people in different states of destitution, uh, and while questioning his own sense that there is like a purpose or there will be a spiritual presence will help these people. The movie explores these things in this kind of improvised way, Brad, as you described. Yes, I want to definitely give it some points for taking on uh, a marriage relationship movie from uh, from the female point of view, which would not necessarily be what you would think uh, Malik would do, being how autobiographical so much of this seems to be. And we hope not too autobiographical, because as, uh, <laughs> warm, okay. uh, as warm a performance and as engaging as uh, Olga Kirienko uh, is... Ben Affleck has provided an emotional dead zone I have rarely seen, even in other Ben Affleck performances. He, I, I am torn between the film 
wanting this to be the coldest character to ever be a romantic lead who doesn't go on to start killing people, or, or whether Affleck is just so confused about how to portray this that he ends up doing nothing, because... Wow, it's like a block of wood, this guy. <laughs> yeah, and, and the and that's a real problem because this movie could almost be alternately titled "Everyone Wants to Marry Ben," yeah. you know. <laughs> and it's like it, it, it's like his, Ben Affleck's main problem, but despite being almost completely withdrawn, is that two different women want to marry him, and he doesn't seem to want to be with people. And you know, I I, I get the sense of what Malik's going for here. He he seems to me, and this is just conjecture on my part, but he seems someone who's more introspective, introverted, perhaps withdrawn, you know, and I would guess that there's a certain amount of self-laceration to this movie in that, you know, the Ben Affleck character is perhaps him at his worst, um, but you're right. Like, the Affleck performance is, is, is a weak point that makes it hard for the movie to work. It's not a total washout for me. I see why they cast him because he's not that expressive an actor, but he does have menace to him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I would agree. On the whole, it doesn't quite get there. Yeah, it's. I actually have a worse opinion about him than both of you guys, possibly combined. Ben Affleck could have been replaced by the cardboard cutout used to fool the robbers in Home Alone 2 that's set on the railroad track, because 90% of Ben Affleck's quote-unquote performance is him moping moving from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen, and the other part is him moping from the right side of the screen to the left side of the screen. The word you're looking for is range. In <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yes. He, right. In terms of range, he's really great as a surveyor of the apartment, the depth, dimensions of the apartment, because he'll sulk in this corner, <laughs> and then he'll sulk in that corner. So, so there are two things that happen in this film. Moping and frolicking. <laughs> yes. And this is the beginning of of what is going to be the frolicking phase of Malik's career. This is a 70-year-old filmmaker who has not grown up. This guy's sense of romance in this movie has all the subtlety and nuance of a 7-year-old girl fantasizing from Teen Beat magazine. The all these angles of, of like, of... And everything about relationships has this limit into the wonder to me, have this incredibly limiting sensibility that there is, like you said, Brad, there's only two phases to the relationship. The ecstatic, frolicky side, where everything's magical and you all scamper around a picnic table together until you stop doing that. And then things are sad. And then you mope around. Well, I, I, I guess, like, I don't feel... I mean, I see what you're saying, but I don't think, like, I would use the word childlike pejoratively. It's more like it's just a basic elemental wish for what you want from a relationship. And then it's, it's expressed simply, but it doesn't make it less true to me. Malik isn't, like, giving you a typical divorce movie, even though that's really what this is. It's, it's run through his sensibility. I mean, there have been many, many good divorce movies that have you know had full-on fights between characters mm-hmm. and told realistic did realistic interactions as a marriage falls apart that's not what he's going for and i think it works 
it can work. Like we talked a little bit about the performances here, or at least Affleck's performance that limits the success of the movie. But I don't think like his point of view makes this film. In, it doesn't make it impossible for the film to work. Like I think it could be there. This particular film doesn't get there necessarily. But I don't think his point of view makes a relationship movie impossible. Right, because we do have um, one part of the relationship that I, I, I think you can emotionally invest of. The wife, her being an outsider coming... I mean, first of all, she, she's living in France. She's, she's Ukrainian. She is brought... To, her and her, her young daughter are, are brought to the United States, to the, 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 the heartland, uh, so to speak. And, and so we have some of the same out-of-placeness uh, that we saw in, in The New World. And there's there's actually yeah, a very yeah, yeah there's actually a very striking scene that they're surrounded by 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 cattle, and yes. uh, yeah. <laughs> and she and this is like okay you're not just in farm country you are you are in the middle of of the farm and as Malik portrays it it's going to be visually uh, visually stunning so you do have this this interesting journey how this outsider you know has to, reacts to America the American dream really great credit should go towards Olga Kurienko who like the Pocahontas from the New World is able to embody this level of like of what former innocence getting hit by all these different personal like setbacks and how she has to grow and change as a result and she also has shares that to me that luminous quality of like seeing the light diminish because she's like a to me like a um, not to get too Malachian she's like a plant whose soil is not enough and you just have a little sprout because mm-hmm. they don't have there's not enough nourishment her soul wants to encompass mm-hmm. so much more that the sterile Oklahoma environment has to offer her no that that's great and actually like to tie I think what you guys both said together like you mentioned the new world and there are shots into the wonder that mirror exact shots from the new world ah. specifically in the uh pocahontas john rolf drolf scenes where you know she's now married him but maybe isn't happy and is trying to adjust to a new way of life as you as you said and there's a scene where it's a two-shot where um john rolf is in the forefront and pocahontas is walking out, they're in the same house but she's walking out the back and he's sitting at the front like basically conveys like distance from them between them mm-hmm. in the film that same shot or same type of shot appears three times into the wonder and it should be it's noticeable that the house they're living in Affleck's house in Oklahoma is very empty like he has all this yeah. empty space that she's ex- he's expecting her to fill but right. really all there is is space between them that never gets filled and and the, the to the wonder does have some nice visual touches that tell that story yes you know um, that, that right the way they show the like this and it's kind of a very subtle like social critique too because they build all these McMansions and but Malik makes it clear that in the frame there's nothing but an empty horizon behind all this development so to point out the sheer pointlessness of the Enterprise is I really effectively brought along in, in visual terms yeah, he does manage to make I mean it's basically a suburban City, or right? Yeah, and exurbs maybe. He make he makes Sonic look arty, a little bit, <laughs> you know, which is a neat trick. I don't know, you know. <laughs> um, but it does it does like there is 
feeling there. I think this is a failure on on Malik's part to inform Affleck to go and like get him to behave in a way that helps the story. I, I think he gave Olga directions of general ways of behaving and gave Affleck ways of behaving, but not explanation of, say, motivation, you know, the standard acting question, right? And Affleck is a guy who has a very limited set of skills of what he can do. He can play, he's really good at playing a hapless douchebag. He's very good at playing, like, a guy, a smug, smirking guy who finds things have gone over his mm-hmm. knee. But what he, what he can't do is this withdrawn internal thing that the story apparently requires him to at least partly try and do. And so when Affleck gets no direction, what does he do? Well, I guess I've got to move over here. All right, I'm here for a while. Let me move over to this location. Uh, can, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay, you don't get to recast the movie, but you can switch Affleck and Bardem. Does that help? Oh, Bardem would Bar, Bardem would have wiped the floor with it. Bardem, Bar, Bardem has much more range, and he can do internal and external quite, quite quite well. In fact, I would even say that he could that he is one of the few actors who could literally do frolic mode to mopey mode and make that and pull that off. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, but, uh, and and actually, I, no, my God, oh, I'm sorry, Brad. I don't sure. want to interrupt. Except that it just hit me like a freight train that. Affleck would be really good as the priest who is put in a hapless situation <laughs> and is over his league. That would be There you go. Well, you fixed it. Well, <laughs> there I fixed it. Dot com. Terrence Malick, to give us a call for your question. <laughs> yeah, Directors Club fixing directors, legendary directors' bodies of work since 2017. <laughs> wow, that was a, that's a really cool that's a really cool transition. Well, I I, I was just I, it, it just occurred to me because like the priest character has so limited time that you might be playing Affleck's strengths there if you're not asking him to do a whole lot. Right. And basically the priest character is someone who's lost faith or is, you know, kind of... <laughs> Affleck could use this wealth of dogma experience. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, but you know what I mean? Like there's, yep. I, I think that in the limited role or the limited screen time that character has, Affleck could probably pull that off. Mm-hmm. And then if you switch the roles, you also have a nice sense of two you know, uh, European or you know, immigrants to America who right. are now trying to find their way in America because both Bardem and Olga Kirienko are not from the U.S. So yes, I think that right. that's an interesting. But you know, this is very autobiographical. That's not Terrence Malick's right, story, right. etc. So, and, so and, we're making a different. And, movie, not, and to do a little cross-cultural, maybe insensitive move, if you make like Javier Bardem's character. Uh, well, um, an immigrant from Mexico is trying to make his way in Oklahoma. That might make things even more potent. But, but you're right. We're ultimately not making it the story that Malik wanted to make. We're moving a little far afield. Yeah. But, but speaking on Bardem and, and Affleck, I wanted to get back to why I think like Bardem is my favorite character. And the reason I point out that I find the relationship so, so horribly blank and useless and worthless <laughs> is then I see what Bardem is doing and then I noticed something is that like like you had said or uh, that the apartments are spare and they're empty but that kind of reflects the characters mm-hmm. their relationship mm-hmm. is empty they have all the space yep. but no soul and no connection to fill it meanwhile the, the avenues which Bardem are traveling for the most part when he looks at these poor people they're too cluttered there's too much stuff there's too much baggage 
and um, uh, Detrius, Deletrius, in, in the lives of the people he's visiting. And what I took from it, I'm looking at the, like, the priest who has this crisis of faith about these meaning. What is the meaning of the purpose of his life? And I, was, I took it to go, oh my God, Terence Malick is having some self-awareness because he has made so many movies about people, pretty people, twirling around in pretty environments. And maybe in that movie, for a little bit, he's looking at the ideas like, is that really what this stuff is about? Is all this beauty that these guys go, what does it really mean? And maybe it's really empty. Maybe these poor people and all of their problems and all the, like collage of things that are assaulting them. Maybe that's the more important thing. And the priest is nothing like the... He's like the Jiminy Cricket of Malick's. He's his conscience. Well, I mean, I would be fascinated to see a movie about this priest uh, who's, I agree, his, you know, he, Vadim, Vardim was very engaging and, and it, ra- it raised a lot of questions. It, it also, uh, an original use of... of New techniques uh, for Malik with, with a lot more handheld camera, right. and I sense maybe use of non-actors. A lot of the people but, Bardem right, interviews, yeah, right. But at at the same time, what is he doing in this movie? And much as there's potential here in in this character to to tell a story about that story is not told and is shoehorned into this movie that I can't really find a connection between the movie and move and small movie B. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the little bit, and, and like I said, I don't think this, I agree entirely. It doesn't fit in very well. Okay. The one thing I think that I, that I did feel is that they are both men who have that, people have expectations of they want something from them either god's love or emotional love and neither one can provide it like the priest has lost his faith affleck isn't capable of basically loving because for whatever reason Mm -hmm. but i mean that that's when they when they do meet at the end toward the end of the film i think that's what he's going for is again that equivocation of faith and love it i guess that doesn't really work for me okay but i think that's what he's going for that's that's really interesting because like i i took i took bardem's plight as not that like he had a cri- it's not that his crisis of faith was that he doesn't think that um uh like the that god or would doesn't exist or anything like that so much as that like there's so much suffering Right. There's that 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 it never ends. That there's so that as uh, you try to console people, but then they have the problems are two times worse. You know. Well, and I think I don't. I think I'm saying I'm I'm not far from you. I I think what is just that he, he hopes that he could give them something that he can't ultimately give them. And yeah. there's a line in this movie somewhere online. It says something like, "There's so much love that never gets out," or something like that. Right. And I think that's basically. The same thing. Like, there's so many people that God's love, if you buy that, doesn't doesn't reach because mm-hmm. of suffering. And then yeah. on the emotional, yeah. inter- interpersonal level, there's so much love between Affleck yeah. and Karienko that doesn't. Yeah, get there it, it might be right. I mean, it might be, it might be wish fulfillment for me. It might be that I'm making a leap that makes the movie more acceptable to myself. But it, that might be a fine. Might also be a fine framework to look at the film. Because of all this overwhelming suffering that Bardem did day after day after day. And yet, meanwhile, these super-rich, ultra-privileged people who live in this wonderful McMansion 
And yet they have such... They're moping all day because <laughs> their problems are so awful. And, oh, I had an affair. And so I look at that priest's travails and I think, well, that's a criticism of how banal your mopey problems could be. And I think that turns all the stuff that I don't like into the wonder about that relationship into an asset that you're actively criticizing it. This is a film kind of filled with regret because the last shot of the movie is like that cathedral on the hill. Right. Almost like that's what's there. Like if you've bought into the equa- equation of faith and love, that's the, ho- that's the house on the hill, right? The mansion on the hill. Right. That's where you can get the promised land, but you're so far away from it that you can't reach it. His next film, Night of Cups, out in 2015, is also a kind of autobiographical um, take that Malik does, because the film is about a um, successful screenwriter, played by uh, Christian Bale, lost in his own head, trying to find like meaning in being a rich, successful Hollywood screenwriter, and this search sends him to the bed of many, many women, and also to like various like highfalutin parties and um and wanderings through Hollywood sets and all this is combined with some issues that he has with his family, his angry father and his um, drug addicted brother. It's all tied in with the uh, some eye concept of the tarot, where different sections are, drop a particular tarot card. Whereas like to the wonder is a look at a couple and how the problems that befall them. Like, this is a look at a single guy and, like, the various travails that he attempts to go through. It starts off with a parable, and the parable goes something along the lines of a prince goes over to the east to to get a pearl. But there, someone gives him a cup. And the cup, drinking from the cup, the prince goes into a deep sleep. And he does not rouse from that sleep. The end. Quote the great philosopher um, Socrates. Cool story, bro. (laughs) It is the worst parable ever made. Well, I I wish that the film had carried on a little more with with the parable and, and made it relate to the Christian Bale character even more. Because we do see what seems to be a moral sleep from him, a sleep from anything important in life. If we're shown him actually waking up from this sleep, I missed it. I'll I'll see your parable and raise you a pilgrim. (laughs) Because because the the film opens with uh, Ben Kingsley narrating a reading 
a part of Pilgrim's Progress, which is basically, I, I mean, I'm not a Christian. I don't know like a lot of the background, but it's essentially the story of a Christian seeking uh, fulfillment uh, by reaching like a higher higher ground, like a castle on the hill sort of thing. Okay. And, and he's going through these lowlands until he gets to the mountaintop, essentially sort of. I'm probably butchering that for anyone who that story means something to. I apologize, but that's the basic idea. Okay. And I think what Knight of Cups is doing is saying, okay, that's your basic framework of someone making his way through, in a relationship sense, making his way through all these kind of wastelands or barren lands and until he's trying to find something uh you know meaningful and and what the various so there are inner titles here of various tarot cards along the way that basically more or less correspond to different relationships in his life some romantic some familial you know again this is autobiographical in the sense that you have an angry father who's difficult to deal with you have a brother who's died um this is very much an old man's movie. Someone looking back at his relationships and wondering what went wrong. That's really interesting. You're so right that you make that uh, that you say because uh, there's at least visually some uh, comparisons to another old man's movie. One I think is uh, far far better, which was uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Mm. Who, for all the greatness of that film also had an extremely naive view of uh of sexuality and of even of debauchery like the uh the big house in uh, eyes wide shut is kind of like this old man's fantasy of uh of what you know those damn kids are doing today and, and i think the the <laughs> what they have in common in addition to kind of being a little you know Really, is is their visually uh, stunning sequences? Mm-hmm. So no matter how they don't they don't connect as accurate, th- they still are sequences where you're like have moments of wow. Like there is mm-hmm. a, a sequence in in a Vegas strip club where a woman is an acrobat is basically flying uh, right. through the air in in the this uh, Cirque du Soleil type situation but the but it, because it's Malik he films it interestingly because he yeah. cuts the camera on the bottom and points it straight up right. so it looks like that she becomes this siren who's like reaching out and like not able to reach like um, Christian Bale's perspective she's her twisting is always towards the camera mm-hmm. the camera frame right and i think that's that's one of two points in this film where i was really impressed with just malick's visual touch and and the other was a, a scene of a dog uh yeah. going for a tennis ball in a pool from the camera placed under the pool <laughs> and i know if you have this this sounds like it would not be interesting at all but trust me, Malik films it in the exact weirdest angle you possibly could, and so it's an interesting scene. <laughs> By the way, I I really hate to get, do this, but I'm actually going to give you some spoiler, honest to goodness spoiler, for Night of Cups or for Night a different of Cups. Movie. <laughs> for Night of Cups. That sequence where the dog it's filmed in ultra slow motion, and so the it's very very weird and unique. It's also ripped off. Oh, this is Malik's to my mind first thing that he took wholesale because there was a whole viral trend of dogs 
jumping into pools to get balls in slow motion in 2014. But were they filmed like Malik would film? They were filmed like Malik. Oh, crap. Did oh, well, there's, there goes one of the points I gave this Wait, film. wait a minute. Were they, were they underscoring uh, um, regret, though? Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if many suburbanites in their backyard or their dogs are. But, well, well, I think in the case of Night of Cups, like, it's, not even re- it's part of the debauchery of a Hollywood party where the dogs like, disappear after the scene to just be celebrities jumping into the pool. All right, this is... So it's not, there's not a whole lot of regret going on in no, here, here, here's uh, the pretentious alert. <laughs> pretentious alert. You know, the dogs <laughs> going for the ball and not quite getting it is basically the regret of the movie of not, you know, connecting with, you know, the relationship you uh-huh. want. Uh-huh. So since we got distracted by the ball, the dog <laughs> and the ball, it might be that the actual plot of this movie is not its the strongest well, it's point. His um, imbecility that he displayed into the wonder is just manifests a glorious idiocy in this one. Like there's so many just things that are said and things that are done that are just in such a phenomenally uninformed level that you're just like wait a minute, did you just loan this out to six- and seven-year-olds to write this? Like, he is a success, supposedly a successful Hollywood screenwriter, which he has two agents, which in one way, I mean, that sounds like an idiot who doesn't know what agents work. Because, no, no, because dude, if you have... Because good agent, bad agent. Here's, here's, here's how... Right, exactly. Here, yeah, you know what? Here's how awesome he is. He has two agents. Yeah. Just in case the one agent's like falls on the line of duty. You get the back of it. No, two agents in Hollywood would compete to, to work off each other's turf. But the way they behave is even worse in the movie because they go and are literally giving him dialogue to him saying, Hey, well, you don't have to finish that script. We'll just double the price. And they'll take it. Who says that? And But the best part is one of the agents to show how much money Christian Bale is getting literally pulls out a paper sack and, and exposes a little of the wad of bills. Just like, wait a minute. Where are you learning how agents get paid? From a, people exchanging malt liquor? What the hell, Malik? What's, what's going on in your head? And, and, but the movie is full of such super weird moments where you're just like, are you just for real? <laughs> like a strip club where the uh, patrons are placed in a cage. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's then the metaphorical go, strip club. Uh, right. Yeah. And then where you go where you go to like Las Vegas, which in the movie portrays as this ultimate den of iniquity. And you go to a club scene to show how evil things are. Oh my god, Eyes Wide Shut is a treacy on debauchery compared to what Malik does, which like these ladies and they have tattoos on them <laughs> and they're in Mexican wrestling outfits oh no and midgets there's a midget oh oh the humanity and I, none of this is any more believable or less believable than his like attempts at actual relationships with uh, the Kate Blanchett uh, character and the Natalie Portman character I have to defend this movie uh, a little bit because I, I think what you're what you guys are describing I don't think it's a fault because the movie isn't going for those things. Like it's the way this movie is edited and the image it presents are kind of just like, you know, they're, they're meant to evoke emotion more than they are to make points. I think And the emotions in this, the regret I was talking about and the kind of looking back, I think is authentically there for him. I don't think that, 
this is just some sort of critique of anything other than himself and the fact that he's wasted his time in a hollow industry. Like the stuff you're talking about with the agents and all this other Hollywood is, is he thinks Hollywood is bullshit. I mean, you have kind of Antonio Bandera show up as the walking epitome of the slimy. Mm-hmm. He's basically Hugh Hefner as a young man or something. You know, like they're in this mansion. And he's talking about how women are just different flavors and things like that. Yeah. And to- yeah, but I mean, that's so facile, man. Like, like that's so on the nose. But, but it's not on the nose. It, it, okay, it is. It is in a sense of if you're looking for a critique. But it, it's to me like the feeling is still there in the way these images are presented. Is he saying something new or, or something that hasn't been said before? No, not necessarily in the way you mean. But he hasn't expressed the way it's felt to him before, and that's why to me this film works is that it never gets off that it's kind of you can call it self-involved it never gets outside itself and to me that works because he's ultimately telling in his own story here or what feel i'm sure it's not autobiographical in the terms like he was with this girl or that girl and he went to the cage strip club and all that (laughs) sort of stuff i doubt that it's not autobiographical in that sense but i'm sure it is in terms of like the regret and failed relationships and you know to me, like the the two most meaningful are Kate Blanchett and Natalie Portman, and the Kate Blanchett uh, is his ex wife who he's failed with, and I think you know his relationship with her also underscores kind of the hollow nature of his profession because she works with these people who need medical attention, burn victims, and, and low income people, whereas he's off fucking around with these agents you're talking about. And meanwhile, the Natalie Portman character is married, but he has an affair with her. So it's almost like a perversion of this thing that he holds most sacred, like having a wife, having a partner that is, you know, destroyed because it's built on this false foundation. And that to me is what he's after. I understand what you're saying in that none of that is particularly new, but it's how is it presenting that, right? Like, how is it about what it's about? And the way it's about that to me is emotionally true and that is something that can't be faked and like this movie has that and i realize i'm in the minority on this but i've liked this movie more every time i each time i watched it there are some things i like about it and i've I've only seen it once so i haven't you know gotten a chance to to delve in quite as deep but i i do like uh christian bale's uh performance uh not that he does this extraordinary um, uh, acting in quotes job, but just that the, the, this is a role that could so easily be unwatchable. For instance, if you cast Ben Affleck in it or, or so, <laughs> but Christian Bale uh, avoids those traps, and and even though I think the journey he's taking us on doesn't really make much sense. I feel like he's at least taking us uh, on the journey. I also like the relationship with his uh, brother and his father, mm-hmm. uh, father played by uh, Brian Dennehy. We don't get yeah. a lot of this, but but the stuff that's there, you get little glimpses of, and, and Dennehy is such, a, such a, a presence that he gets to imply things that, you know, Brad Pitt had uh, two and a half hours 
right. to convey in Tree of Life, and, and it, obviously it's not a film at that level, but 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 Dennehy uh, implies some of the same relationship dynamics. Yeah, the the Dennehy does have a really big presence, but there is a level in there where like Malik does not have the confidence to just have Dennehy be a big presence. To just be imposing Dennehy for a big actor, and an actor who plays big, is also capable of showing like brokenness and, mm-hmm. and, and vulnerability within his frame. But Malik shows him by this, by him throwing himself, prostrating himself on the ground, moaning in agony, like, and, and screaming in scenes as if he's like imitating the thing. Maybe I'm just reading too much, but there's also a short scene where you see the Dennehy character like performing on a stage. Yeah, and I almost think that what you're talking about is the way like Bale's character would see him, where he's putting on this show of his emotions and putting you know down his kids or right. like like it's a performance for him or something right. like that. Yes, right. That that is a really good scene, and that is a like a mark of and that is a mark of subtlety that like right. that so much of the movie lacks for me. Like. Like, the brother's dynamic is depicted, again, in this just, like, really regressed childlike way where they're, like, they're engaging in, like, these behaviors of, like, seven-year-olds roughhousing. They're literally sticking forks in each other. They're throwing balls at each other. There's one point where Christian Bale's on a skateboard. Right. And you're just, like... <laughs> Okay, man. I mean, do you have to be on diapers to just try and make but, your but metaphor? But that, that is a point of the movie is is right. that he is a uh, uh, overgrown oh, child. Yeah. So that's 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 a good way to put it. I mean, like you say, I mean, he's not living this uh, shallow lifestyle because he's he's got it all together. You know, again, what the movie does with it, you know, is, is another question. But I, I do think. That's kind of consistent with uh, with some of, some of Malick's themes of viewing things in in a, a child's point of view. I think that Mal- Malick is just really great at being able to express this kind of thing of these childlike points of view. But what works for children, what works for people who are unused to war, engaging in a wartime environment, I find just ultimately so lacking and and just such a sputtering mess when it comes towards trying to deal with adults in adult interactions of any complexity. I I guess I think the key difference between us on this subject is just that I don't see something as child... Something can come from youth, to quote Eddie Vedder, all that's Mm -hmm. sacred comes from youth. To me, like, what's happening there is that you can be trapped in childhood emotions without... And still tell an adult story. I mean, you can be trapped in things that happen to you as a child and still, and I don't mean that in a simplistic sense. There are some things that where, you know, the die is cast and you grow up from a certain thing. And I think that's what Malik's movie is trying to do. I don't think that he's saying that, you know, like looking at these people as children, I think he's saying that they're limited and that there's regret and they wish they could be more and they're trying, like the Pilgrim's Progress, like they're trying to get past that. Now the metaphors he uses for this are very high-minded you know, or tarot if you Mm -hmm. don't think tarot's high-minded, but I mean, like Pilgrim's Progress, he's he equates all this stuff with faith and transcendence. And here, like it's more in a relationship sense as to the wonder was, but that's what he's trying to do. I don't think that 
saying they're childlike is it, it means that the movie isn't good. It, it's really what he's saying about the characters and where they are in their lives and how they're stuck. Well, I mean, well, that's the way it feels to me. I have a question, have a question okay. which is that is do we see on screen Christian Bale's character trying to overcome this? He's at the end of the film that seems to indicate that he's had a breakthrough. He says, right. uh, begin. But I, I'm not sure I saw the point where he left this uh, state, had some kind of epiphany, had some kind of moment that's provided, like the ones provided to Sean Penn in, in Tree of Life, where where he eventually gets out of this state. Now, now, am I missing something? Was that there? Well, no, so I think... It depends how much weight you want to put on the tarot stuff. So I'm not a tarot expert by any stretch, but the segment that that, what you're talking about, where that happens after, is the death segment. Mm -hmm. And death, according to my research Mm -hmm. (laughs) in tarot, can mean, it doesn't necessarily mean a typical, like, just surface-level death would equal. It can mean transformation as well. Mm-hmm. And basically, that comes after the Portman sequence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I th- the way I read that is that he's come back, like, because the Portman character gets pregnant and has an abortion. And this is basically, like, he's come closest to putting, like, a family together, but it was built, all, like I said like earlier, on a false foundation, and the child was aborted. And now, like, everything has broken. Essentially, like, he, you know, he's got as close as he's come, and it all fell apart. So, in a sense, that that version of him died, and now there's beginning. And, and, and I think it ties in generally that Malik likes to have positive notes towards the end of his films. Mm-hmm. E- even with... Um, Thin red line. There's like that shot of like something growing on the beach. Yes. And here, I think like you have to read into like the tarot interpretation of death not as an end but as a transformation. Well, there's a couple of things about that. I mean, one thing is that like the tarots. Un- unfortunately, I was trying to track those tarots, and they don't quite match the different sequences. But ultimately, the ultimate example for how like unfortunately like meaningless the tarot is is that there is a title card that says freedom after death. And that's obviously not a tarot card. For death to be, or the death tarot card to be an effective transformation, that requires, to me, some sort of acknowledgement of, like, some different role, some different way you should act. But freedom belies that whole idea. It means you do whatever the hell you want. Which, by the way, is exactly the fatal flaw of Knight of Cups for me. Apart from all these other issues that I raised, it's that... I would... I don't even care for a bad journey so much as, like, an actual journey... He is a character who does nothing at all. He does nothing. And at the end, while continuing to do nothing, he just says to begin, which I'm like, well, you haven't started for two hours. Well, no, Let's but, go. Because I, I think when you're saying he doesn't do anything, that goes back to like the way it feels to me is that he's trapped by something before. And when he's saying freedom and begin is the fact that maybe now... And it may be that he doesn't get anywhere, that maybe he's still the same fuck-up he's always been. But, like, to me, like, the idea of at least the beginning is there for him internally, which is what, as it, like, to me, like, the movie has always been so inside itself that that worked for me because it doesn't necessarily have to show me his his success, but it tells me that he's made an, an inward journey. It leads me to a question 
about some of the aesthetics of this film, which is that this seems to be the film where there is nature plays the least role. Yeah. You see a, a little bit at the end, but but this is a, a completely urban environment that that's similar to you know Delshawn Penn in this glass building, but yeah. but in, but there's no place for him to go that represents the nature. That His world is, so, is literally rocked yes. by an earthquake, right? Yeah. And and I take this to mean that like that Malik is trying to show how the urban environment is giving these distractions that perhaps could be keeping. Um, could be keeping him from doing the right path, you know. Now, said right path is, I find, ridiculously simplistic, but it's, I think it's there when you, like, for example, see these high-minded houses, and then the camera slowly zooming in, and you see the mountains, which periodically you see Christian Bell wandering the mountains, which is meant to be his mental landscape, and there it is in the background, but all this L.A. city schmutz is in the way. And and I don't think there's a single helicopter or bicycle or or plane in the movie that Malik doesn't call attention to by jacking the camera up to show it. Like, there's always something just buzzing. There are these, like, mechanical insects which are keeping the peace of mind of Christian Bale's character. Yeah, I, I think maybe where nature comes in the most in this movie is that water is a recurring image a lot. Like in the in pools right. or yep. somebody's in water. Yep. I'm not entirely sure. I, I mean, water is cleansing. Water is baptismal. You know, like I I I, I don't know exactly what. But to it's make also of that. the 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 scenes of a lot of debo- uh, yeah debauchery. Yeah, and I don't I don't quite know what to make of that other than it's recurring. I I I, I didn't really work out what that meant to me. Well, to me, like I find the water is water is people's soul fluid. Mm. It's the motion through which they express what they like. There's a really, there's a nice notable scene, which hints at what you're, what you get out of the movie, Peter. Where like when Antonio Banderas, I mean, when he dives into the pool, you see the subterranean, oh sorry, the underwater look at the pool, and there's all these people swimming, and and and, and Antonio Banderas is doing a little jig, right? But then later you see Bale, and he's in that same pool, but he's by himself, and he's submerged. Yeah. What people in this environment treat as an opportunity to dance and revel is something that he finds an opportunity to drown in. So it's actually maybe not the medium. That's not the setting. It's the person and what they're doing in that setting. I like that. I like that take a lot. Yeah. So that's like Malik's use of water, I think, still lends to like just real great rewards on here. And this is also one of the most potent, explicitly symbolic. Pete, what you said about like highfalutin bullshit and so on. But you know what? If you want to think about that way in a in a movie, I think Knight of Cups could get you some reward there because water, in the sense, is something that he has of trepidation because he's only rarely goes into the water, and he spends a lot of time when he reminisces about a woman in his life. The woman is manifested on the shoreline. Right. He very rarely dives deep, except I think at one point when his brother is on the scene with him and then he wades into the water hmm. the water seems to me to be his emotional involvement or his removal of from said involvement you know, you know what i also like too is when he's with the natalie portman character which i take as the most meaningful relationship it's also when he de- dives into the deepest water because he jumps off that pier and, and that's right where, where it specifically says no diving it's almost like saying yes. don't go here don't dive into this relationship why right he he doesn't accede to the own warnings placed upon him that's a really cool yeah that's a really cool move you know and so the way like the rocky outcroppings reflect his mental landscape and the shoreline is his judgment point of how will he let in 
the different women in the different women in his life. There, I think, like in his symbolic terms, like that's kind of what he's exploring. Yeah. You know, I just would personally have really just liked it if once once in the movie they would show this person trying anything. Doing anything at all to change his situation—I guess diving into the Pierrot account. So I guess that—I guess that's totally fair. But mm-hmm. it's very, very scant. Too often he's willing to mope, wander aimlessly, and have things happen at him. From Night from of Cups into the Wonder, Malik is looking introspectively out in a very, very personal level. And all the cos- cosmic stuff is out there in the margins, but not really expressed that much in those two films. But there's a reason for that. And, and the reason is that he was taking this, this cosmic viewpoint and using it to make it in its own movie called Voyage of Time in two different versions. One called Voyage of Time, Life's Journey, which has narration by Kate Blanchett, and it's a full-length movie, kind of visual documentary representation of the creation of the universe, is then interpersonal with a lot of like societal contemporary struggles, such as like riots and famine and so on. And then it, there was a shortened version, I want to say 40 minutes, that is narrated by Brad Pitt, that played in IMAX theaters and is called Voyage of Time, the IMAX Experience. I think you were not able to see Voyage of Time? No, I haven't seen either version, unfortunately, because, uh, sadly for me, neither version is played in Chicago, where we are. And I'm not quite sure why that happened. I I know uh, we all went to TIFF last year. Toronto Film Festival. And I know you guys, I think you saw the full-length version, like the Cape Blanchett version, right? That's right. So, yeah, so I was unwilling or unable to get up for that 9 a.m. screening. Yes. Um, But had I, you know, to my regret now, because I wonder if I'm ever going to see these films. Well, you might hold off on that regret just a moment. (laughs) Well, I will go and say, at least for my experience... Even though it was uh, a horribly unpleasant experience, even if it wasn't showing at 9 in the morning, I am very happy that I did make the effort to see it. Because the one level where it excels, like in every Malick film, is in showing these breathtaking visuals that push the boundaries of what you think you can see on a movie screen. And to have that broadcast on a wide canvas inside a Toronto theater is a really remarkable moment, regardless of what else the movie is trying to do. And and it does do that. As we've said so many times here, even even the worst Malick movie is going to have breathtaking visuals. It would be a wonderful experience to watch this film with the sound down, and put some classical music on the CD player, and why, and why would that be, Brad? All the visuals. Well, that can be summed up in one word: mother.
brother did it need to be so high? To put that in context, the narration, uh, and the, again, this is the Kate Blanchett narration of the longer version, have no idea what how the Brad Pitt narration went. I'll, I'll give kind of, a, of an example when we get to the part with the Ice Age. The narration goes somewhat like, Mother, why have you abandoned us? Meaning Mother Earth or Mother Nature, <laughs> because clearly the Ice Age was some kind of moral um, right. <laughs> a retribution. Right, it was the reverse of Noah's Ark. So what you have, I mean, look, it's one thing to have this kind of narration, uh, poetry, whatnot, in a film dealing with, with themes, but we're basically talking about a science documentary and then the narration is just so completely out of sync with everything they're trying that, that they're showing us and all these breathtaking sights that we're seeing that I'm just I just literally wanted to turn turn it off turn the volume off let us just see this yes to make an analogy for it Imagine if you have the chance to visit Shakespeare's Globe Theater, and while you're in the middle of admiring Shakespeare's collected works, you get to hear, overhear someone recite their nine-year-old diary entry in their poetry competition to you. That's how bad these quotes are. They are trite, simple, so, so shallow, and like done out of like this just not even childlike to get all the way to infantile version of nature. Well, she says mother about a hundred times. Right. (laughs) Yes. And then there's a pervasive thread just going about like, why do bad things, why do humanity love bad things when nature is so good? The sheer insipidness of this sentiment is not only bad in its own right, but it's also completely besides the point. Because the imagery and the versions of nature allow for so much more complexity and so much more of a sense of wonder than your words can convey. Brad, you cannot be more correct. Literally anything is better than what is there, including narration from any other one of Terrence Malick's movies. There are two possible. There are two ways that would have uh, they could have gone with this to make it. An essential movie, something that 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 would maybe have gotten to Chicago finally. I mean, one is you could have just had a, a visual film and put classical music as the soundtrack, and that would have been great. You didn't need any narration at all. But the other thing they could have done, and I know this is kind of not Malick's thing, but it, it would complement the visuals, is to actually talk the science. And they could be dis- talking about what we're seeing in educational terms. And yes. that would have made this possibly the greatest uh, science education film ever made. Well, yeah, you're, you're basically describing that Planet Earth miniseries as directed by Malik, right? Which, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a world beater. I mean, or potentially at least, that would be a tremendous experience. Right, right. Because, I, I, right, because Malik is, in his visuals, he's able to show like this scope of nature in a way that even nature documentaries are really dedicated, of course, to show like how nature is glorious and wonderful. But Malik can push it further. Like, there's these images of jellyfish where they're so prevalent up on the oceans, they're filmed from below. So not only is the sunlight filtering through the, through the 
jellyfish's body, but they're so cover the surface that you actually can't tell where one jellyfish ends another begin. Like a whole statement about how life is teeming. And when they show the proto-human beings, the uh, Cro-Magnons, they're shown in a really active way. They're leaping. Mm-hmm. They're fighting. They're dare I say it, frolicking. Uh-huh. And, and, but, but that level of like, youthfulness that has informed so many of Malick's films up to this point works like gangbusters for showing primitive man because, of course, our humanity has been an insignificant blip. We are, like, we are, the, very, we are the little children of what this planet has created. So it makes perfect sense to show you know, primitive man as this exuberant, vibrant, and very, very quick to judge, to anger, what have you, to do it's very, very cool and a very in a way that's very unique than how depictions of primitive man have been shown before. But this shows a vibrancy that it was lacking in what people think of that kind of development before. But as soon as you're like as soon as your mind is left to absorb this wonder and to think of these interesting connections, you get Mother what have we done to you now? And you're just like, oh. Can, you can't see the image because you're so busy face-palming. Can, can I ask, I mean, obviously you guys had a pretty negative experience with the feature-length version of this. Mm-hmm. Would potentially the IMAX version, which is less than half the length of the version you guys saw, and you know has much more immersive visuals just by definition of it being an IMAX, is that about the right ratio the, the, or what do you the, think the dickish the dickish thing i'll say on it is by virtue of being half the length makes it twice as good yeah. <laughs> but that's being unfair because i have heard some i personally have heard seen some clips from it and brad pitt's depictions the statements he makes are not this esoteric teen diary crap they are basic general depictions of what's happening on screen and the basic natural processes that are happening, how like magma forms like the rocks on the earth and stuff like that. So by virtue of being, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a fan of naturalism and biology and science in general, but I find there's enough wonder in there too. Just if you, if you think your like sayings are adding, they are not, that's not correct. There's, there's more than enough wonder to go around and Brad Pitt's, Let's that flow through, and there there actually is some visual stuff um, that I'm assuming got cut for the IMAX uh, piece that probably should have gotten cut, which is an <laughs> occasional flash forward to modern day uh, right. street scenes, right? And they're just off topic. Again, I'm, I'm assuming that that they're not in the the shorter version, right? Which, Those which, scenes which are would, cut. Be improved. And, and honestly, Brad, you're being a little too charitable because you're by calling them off-topic. That would be great if they were off-topic, but unfortunately, I think at least as far as Kate Blanchett's narration is concerned and her sentiment, they are very on-topic because they are almost all about riots mm-hmm. and strife and poor people and people being mean to each other. And clearly, the world would be just a real perfect little oyster if it wasn't for all us humans messing things up. Just this, just. I don't know how a person who's made films such a robust filmography up till now puts out this hippie garbage. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my word. What they mean, what they say, mother. Oh! 
as bad as they are. Everything they are. audio happening is. Yes. Uh, it, it, yes. It's yes. still good are, that this exists. If, because if you we, ever have a yeah. chance to see this in a theater, mm-hmm. I would recommend it. Because ultimately, Malik is still able to give you things that you've never seen before. Just bring headphones. Exactly. Just bring headphones and your favorite classical music. And you will you will have a rewarding time of seeing it. Well, I really hope to be able to see it someday. I, it, I have a feeling that Blu-ray at home is not the optimal way to see this. But no. right now, there's no uh, Blu-ray date release listed. Oh, so the, the Blu-ray, I think, literally, you know how they have rides in amusement parks, which say you must be at least this tall to do the ride. They need an equivalent for Voyage of Time that your viewing area must be at least this wide and this high or, or, for you to properly appreciate what Voyage of Time has to offer. Or, or the manufacturer thinks at least five people must buy this Blu-ray before <laughs> before we will make any of them. Hey, maybe if they give a discount to mothers, it would work out. Song to song that released in 2017, but it actually was made back to back with Night of Cups. For a guy who took like so much breaks between movies, he's now was making two, three movies effectively simultaneously. It's a Woody Allen like pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Song to Song has some kind of Woody esque concerns because it's like a bunch of romantic entanglements among the uh, Austin music scene. Uh, Rumi Mara is like an aspiring musician who um, develops a kind of a romantic triangle between a character played by Ryan Gosling, who is all, who is a fellow aspiring musician, and they both fall under the wing under a character played by Mas- Michael Fassbender, who is a kind of a big wheel in these uh, music circles and provides potential opportunities for these other characters to succeed in their music careers. And along the way, they experience these romantic entanglements amongst not just each other, but when they break up, they spiral off and they, and they encounter other, uh, other people in their romantic lives. Um, some played by, like, Cate uh, Blanchett, Natalie Portman, uh, Berenice Marlowe, and a music artist, Lickay Lee, in her own right. And this also features some... Uh, this was also filmed by in Austin during various years of the South by Southwest Music Festival, so you also get a chance of some some cameos of the non-Hollywood celebrity variety, but of the music variety, including Patti Smith, Johnny Rotten, and a very interesting turn, at least I think so, by Val Kilmer in a chainsaw. <laughs> and Iggy Pop, shockingly not wearing a shirt during his uh, scenes in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Any shirt, no service from Iggy Pop. <laughs> Honestly, what this movie feels like is I referred to Night of Cups as an old man's movie. Yep. This is a young person's movie. This is almost like someone like the Rick character, although in the music industry instead of the film industry, going through various relationships at, in his 20s or maybe early 30s. And it's someone, you know, it, there's a freedom assumed with these characters that, you know, they'll just kind of go from partner to partner. Um, you know, not without regret. I mean, they, they do try to stick together, and there's this is another triangle with Rooney Mara, Fassbender, 
and uh, Ryan and Gosling. Ryan Gosling. You know, it, it, so there's it, it's very similar to Night of Cups. It almost could be like a prequel to it in a lot of ways, as it feels to me. Like a lot of the cast overlaps. You know, it's essentially telling a very similar story just earlier in the characters' lives. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the uh, the first film I saw in this series of uh, the three improvisational films. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it actually struck me a little fresher than the other two, but but I feel like that's yeah. probably only because uh, I saw it first, and I also came up with a bit of an angle that may not in any way have been intended, no. but uh, like, it, it's something that 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 I gleaned from it, which is. The story is, at its basis, one of the oldest stories in the book, one of the classic Hollywood stories, which is the triangle with the uh, successful older man, a somewhat maybe a somewhat sinister Svengali, as uh, Fassbender uh, plays him, yep. uh, and then the, uh, the young, naive woman who's looking to uh, get her start and find, and find romance ends up under the, the older man's wing. And then uh, now here comes the, uh, the idealistic younger man, the one who's more pure of heart, to offer her uh, something that, that, that's more real and romantic, as, as the, the Ryan Gosling uh, character embodies. So I, I'm thinking of, of this, this, this kind of formula, but then I'm realizing the movie is not actually telling this story outright. Because there, because as as in the other two movies, there's so much narration and so little dialogue, and the the editing is so fragmented, we're seeing this story kind of unfold without being told that this is what they're doing. So it's like I felt like I was watching a classic story in pantomime that I was filling in the blanks for because the film is only providing the most basic outline. I, I do think there's a there's just a an energy to this movie that comes with youth, basically. You know, th- there isn't, like, these people are making the regrets that the Rick character would have later, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> but the energy is there now, and it's, especially with Michael Fassbender character, you described him as kind of a Svengali, or he's kind of a devilish character, and, you know, he's clearly improving a lot, mm-hmm. and I think yes. he he manages to, to give a good performance, in that, and as does Rooney Mara, I'm less charitable towards Gosling, I don't, I like him as an actor, I think he's better comedically, um, he's kind of in pose mode here, so I don't really buy his part of the equation. But overall, I, I think there there's a lot to recommend in this movie. And yeah. and I looked a little as I read a little bit about this movie or, or learned a bit about it. The first cut of it was eight hours. Mm-hmm. It was actually intended initially to be like a miniseries or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they cut it down to kind of just give you. I think you're only seeing like the tips of various stories, you know. Ah. And I I think. I don't know that an eight-hour version of this movie would be yeah. anything that I want to spend a day with or over a time of run of a series, but I think there's a lot to like here. I just I really appreciate the energy of it. Um, some of the musical performances, like they try to like 
I, I never really got the feel that either Gosling or Mara were on the like credible musicians, basically, which is a problem for the movie a little bit. She she is holding the guitar like it's a dead duck. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they have her. They have her. They're filming scenes, I believe, at the Austin City Limits Festival. So there's these huge crowds, and then they film her at these weird angles where she's not really doing a whole lot. Right. And if you're supposed to get the idea that these crowds are in to her performance or her band's performance it doesn't really come well, across the movie yeah. is actually kind of stingy with the music yeah. uh, yes. for uh, something that takes place in music festivals and called Song to Song more music would have been welcome and you do get again kind of little glimpses here and there the music is kind of treated like everything else you just, you just kind of get a peek but when you were saying about the longer version, that might explain the uh, fourth part of the triangle, which is the introduction of, of Natalie Portman's character, yeah. who, strangely enough, plays a blonde uh, waitress who falls under the spell of the Fassbender character, and it's a little kind of a plot that doesn't quite fit, but but is its own is is its own thing to follow a little bit more of uh, Fassbender's exploits. Yeah, uh, but but Portman seems a little miscast. In this uh, more and more than a little yeah. miscast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Exactly. the The streetwise waitress is not Portman's forte. <laughs> and actually, like you know how we were talking about how Ben Affleck doesn't quite work with what Malick was giving him. You know, some people can do Malick quite well. And some people just can't. Hmm. She is one the one person who I've felt that was defeated by Malik because, like, there's scenes in Night of the one moment of amusement I had in Night of Cups was when she, like so many other women in the movie, is frolicking at the beach with uh, Christian Bale's uh, Rick character, but. But in her case, it doesn't look like she's having fun with Rick so much as running away from him. <laughs> it's just, and it just does not. And uh, yeah, she just and, chooses to walk out into the ocean. That's yeah, the yeah. end of movie. She, she was and, defeated, and, as opposed. Whereas, whereas yeah. Rick is covered with water, and he's just, oh wow, I'm so refreshed. She just looks bedraggled. <laughs> and Brad, once again, I think you might be a bit charitable towards. At least I'm less charitable towards uh, Natalie Portman's because. I kind of think it is a fit, but the fit is the fit is what uh, Peter Wilde. I think he has a young guy's energy, and that is to his credit. He has his ancient, decrepit sense of nineteen fifties Disneyland morality to it, because Natalie Portman's purpose in the movie is to show how evil Fassbenders is, because. Oh no, he's brought her to the wanton side of having sex outside of marriage and then in a, in just a a moment that is out of place on an episode of General Hospital, she finds out that this other woman that he's sleeping with, she also used to be a teacher. Oh no. Oh no. and then her natural response of course is to kill herself. Yeah. It's amazing how re- how retrograde that kind of attitude is. Well, I do think I mean, it's possible that, you know, with longer running time, maybe there would have been more meaning invested with that. I do agree that this is another third act death, which does not work very well. Um, I I think the idea behind the suicide is that the Michael Fassbender character has carried on as if there would be no consequences to him. And he doesn't recognize the impact he has on others' lives. 
and I think that's what they're going for. Although to kill a character to give another character a learning moment or something, yes. I, I don't. I, I it, that doesn't work. I, I, I'm yeah. not. I think that's what he's going for. I don't really think it works. And, um, right. Unfortunately. And then the and then the attitude to me is just extended to Romy Maris character and. And considering he, uh, like Malik, has had so such an effective level of sympathy towards his female characters, that I find it kind of mildly appalling to see how Rumi's arc happens, which basically involves like her somewhat romancing Fassbender and somewhat romancing, and then she's saying, "Oh, I'm just living for the moment." And to me, it seems the movie is kind of condemning her for that. Well, I, I think that the the point of the movie is that you can try to live moment to moment, song to song, desire to desire. And ultimately, you're not going to outrun the consequences of that. And, and it, it, I don't know if it's a punishment other than it's just like young characters learning the ways of the world or something like that. Um, I think in another area, another era, this would have been like kind of an end of the 60s movie sort of thing where the hippies, you know, ultimately have to like get a job or something yes. like that. No, no, right. And I feel that. And honestly, I feel that like and I feel that in the way of the, how the music is treated where like. Like as Brad said, the music is done in this real scattershot manner, and almost all of the rock music is presented, whether through the dark setting and the kind of a kind of more claustrophobic lens. Like is it's meant to show this is a wanton path you don't want to stray for. It's much better to listen to this Victrola of Nat King Cole than to hear this evil devil music, which is just like seeing this kind of sentiment that's like seventy years out of date. Which, by the way, includes. The most evil-looking mosh pit of all time, filmed in <laughs> slow motion as you see these angry nineteen-year-olds and they're 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 kicking their elbows and it's meant to be like oh, it's some horrible cattle stampede. And I'm like, okay, man, you know what? This was happening for Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Will you, will you, will you get out of your old man's? It is the most like get off my lawn, you lousy rock people don't understand that Michel- since Michelangelo and Antonioni had those people in blow-up. <laughs> well, but, but isn't there a question of, of whether this style that, that Malik has uh, adopted is always the most effective way to tell his story? Because, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, garnering all this from from snippets because... The way the, the way it's filmed, the way it's told, we don't we don't the the narrative isn't allowed to grow in, in, in any kind of meaningful way, which right. might also be a result of it originally being an eight hour uh, TV series, and it, it just ra- raises a lot more questions because you still have the stunning visuals, you still have this uh, great use of, of a camera. But you've basically gotten to narrative standstill at this point. There is no narrative momentum when you literally try to take things in editing and, like, maybe you were successful in combining, you know, shot A with shot B or shot B in the shot C, you know. But there's so, there's so much editing going on in these movies. And so it's incredibly difficult. And if all three of these movies, I think, to the wonder, might have the most momentum to it or attempted momentum. Most of these last three movies, to me, have been very scattershot as a result, because it's, it's like it is a person's distracted attention and doesn't really coalesce into anything even like a pace. Well, I, I think, to me, like I would disagree a little bit. I, I mean, mm-hmm. 
we, when we were talking about uh, the Tree of Life, we talked about how the images in that feel like memories feel. Yes. And I do think that these last three movies have images coming at you the way, like, feelings would. Or if you have, like, a certain regret or when you think of a person, like, or a past relationship or whatever, the way they're presented are, like, those kind of almost quick cuts, like a jab to your, you know, like, yeah. you feel it that way. And I do think just that mechanism of the way he presents it, like... I, maybe it's just a thing where if you're on the wavelength of these movies, like you can you can go with them, you can take them. If you're not, then you're going to be having a miserable time. Well, well, what would be an example for you in Song to Song where like you caught an image that you go, oh my god, that's that that memory is so good. I think in general, I just had that that feeling. I, I think part of it, like I don't know if I have a specific image, but there are, there are definitely like scenes where. Like either Gosling or or Fassbender were with Mara, and she wasn't really doing much. But it would almost remember the way she was, you know, like standing next to the window or something, mm-hmm. and or you know, just like when they were out walking around and had some conversation about something. There's just that thing of like if you had someone in your life that like is no longer in your life, and you think about them like some afternoon you had with them you know, maybe doing nothing that I think song to song has moments in it that capture that. And like, it feels, I think a lot of these last three movies for Malik, a lot of it for me just goes by feel. And I feel like there's a lot of authenticity in there. And I, and I can ride kind of, I can go for the ride they're taking me on. I, I would completely understand like if someone wasn't along for that ride, but to me, like it always goes back that is is Malik conveying an honest emotion with what he's doing, and in every instance of the films I've seen, the answer to that's been yes. Um, as he's gotten more experimental, he it's almost like you have to take it at that level and just go for like I'm not going to be able to explain this intellectually, but how does this feel to me? And those last three movies have passed the test, uh, you know, for me. But, like, when you're looking at song to song, you have these, like, and you get these feelings and impressions. I mean, have you had success? Do you find that they build on each other or they reflect on each other in an interesting way? Well, I, I do think song to song, particularly at the end, has some problems. We already talked about, like, the, you know, the Natalie Portman's character dying. And there's a real regrettable character development with the Ryan Gosling character, which makes yeah. no fucking sense and comes yep. out of nowhere. Right. Um, where all of a sudden he becomes like an oil worker. <laughs> like, well, and that has not been like hinted at. It hasn't been. And well, I, I think, I think, see, I think basically what the movie's saying is that forget that hollow music industry, go do something like here. And yes, it, it just yes. feels like out of left field and ridiculous. That's right. I mean, so it, and that's like, right. And, and when you, and, and it would be better if it was ridiculous, you know, like it's much better to think that it's just like uh, some weird thing that just floated out of Malik's head than to think of, unfortunately, what how I think of it, which is that that Malik hates what these lousy kids and their rock and roll leading them astray. When what you really need to do is you need to work the fields, work the land, like the people of the soil. Can can I I would push back on that a little bit. I don't think he's speaking down to the music. I think he's speaking down to the way that music gets out. 
I think what he sees as the problem is like the music industry. Like, and that's basically what Fassbender's character is, is like, he's kind of the weasel, right? At some point he, Gosling finds out he's stolen his royalties or yeah. stolen his publishing. Right. And I think what he sees is like, he sees all these different types of music as pure expression. He just sees like the industry, which is basically entirely represented by Fassbender in this movie yeah. as being something that will never let that purity get into the world. And he, purports that the right answer is to say fuck it go work in the oil field you know which that doesn't work to me and i i just think that yeah. i think that's what he's trying to say and i think he honestly does value music as an artistic expression especially one a youthful one it's just that like it's per the way it gets out to kids is perverted by finance by he's, at odds. he's I mean, at odds with his actors here because fassbender while portraying all these negative uh, qualities, is the most charismatic uh, actor in the film. So uh, he's the one that is constantly getting our attention, and he's the one whose relationship uh, with Rooney Mara seems the most interesting and alive. And so Ryan Gosling being maybe a little miscast uh, also... You know, negatively affects on on the themes of the film. He doesn't absolutely agree with that yeah, entirely. Yeah. yeah, Gosling isn't so much miscast as that he doesn't add to the role that Mala gives him, which is mm-hmm. to be that standard template of the country boy who's in it for the real music as opposed to the evil Svengali. And Rosling shows it by playing a harpsichord on the kitchen table and doing these kind of very very simplistic ways of showing how it's really authentic for him. He doesn't even show the depth that he does in um, La La Land, honestly, in terms of the <laughs> complexity of, of that kind of ethical thing. Although and, at least he doesn't sing here. To your, and to your point, Peter, I, I just would love for that for Malik to have more of an appreciation, especially since I've been to South by Southwest, you've been to South by Southwest, South by Southwest, when you get the right band and the right music and the right atmosphere... It has moments of earth-shaking transcendence that rival the best of what Malick has to offer. And Malick shows no such scenes for rock music in his movie about South by Southwest. In fact, if that was the case, maybe when, maybe when Gosling and um, Ruby Mara are romancing each other, maybe some of the music that he was playing could be out there, in the same way that he played the ukulele in Blue Valentine to such really wonderful effect, which included his singing, but mm-hmm. that was... His bad singing was part of the charm. Right. But that does not happen. It's Malik's classical music collection that takes the yeah. floor. And, and, and to me, every time that rock music manifests itself, it's to rear the, uh, its ugly head as something that's leading Rumi Mara and the other characters astray. I, I guess I'd, I I agree that like one of the mil- movie's problems is the tenuous relationship of the various characters to being credible musicians. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that I, I guess I would disagree with the connotation of rock as some you know like fifties preacher would see it or something. Like I, I guess I, I just I, I see more of from in his eyes the problem is the fastbender character in this movie, which to Brad's point is is also a problem because he's the most charismatic. <laughs> You know, he just, he needs. There needs to be two sides of an equation for this to work, and we have like one side yeah. on this in this yeah, film. I find right. I find that level of the triangle with a missing leg is like happened to me with Days of Heaven, and it's happening here. Mm-hmm. But although what you guys are saying about Fastbender is 
really cool a really cool angle that I was not even thinking about it because to me like different people react to the improv style of Malik differently and to me I look at Fassbender's activity and I'm just like and I see the opposite of where Affleck where Affleck just shuts down and goes I don't know I'll just walk around here Fassbender is such a technically brilliant actor he has hundreds of skills mm-hmm. in his brain about how to act and I see a poor poor son of a bitch just trying desperately to do any of them to depict these vague like intonations that like Malik passed them on a note card the day before so I was like what do I need to do do I need to like dance on a table do I need to like do the Macarena do I need to roll around on the ground do I need to slither like a snake uh huh oh I get it you know like what do I need to do to act and I see him like acting up a storm to just try and have something to feel honest and that honesty you feel I wish I would feel but I just look at a guy and I see him flailing but I want to run a question by you in the sense that he's more charismatic, how cool would it have been if, like, the movie was, like, his version of Kit from Badlands? That he was, like, he's a charismatic guy, but he shows you the seduction, you know? And it's not done in this kind of expressly moralistic fable, like, he's bad, bad guy is bad, you shouldn't be with him, Rumi. Instead, showing what makes him compelling, what makes rock music, or even that debauchery of rock music, interesting, instead of just outright condemnation. Yeah, you could take that to the next level and say, what if you had cast uh, Fassbender in Knight of Cups and showed his inner workings Fast- in, in oh my God, trying Brad. to yeah. uh, exploit and live that lifestyle before realizing that how empty it was and providing yes. a, 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 an arc there. And Fast- you, Brad, that's awesome. And because he is, among other things... Fassbender's kind of done that. He made a movie called Shame. And Shame is so much about a guy is trying to behave in a debauch, debauchery-like manner, but it's hiding this big hole he has in his, in his soul and his character. And he obviously knocked it out the park in that movie. He was so good in that. That kind of performance in Night of Cops would have been, oh... I almost want to descend to my Malick-like reverie to think about like that kind of movie, you know? <laughs> this is part of the reason I'm really happy we're able to go and have this conversation is it's through this bounce, because, and I think it's something that Malick has a spirit from even today, how he can take all these different tones and by connecting and bouncing them against each other so explicitly in his last three movies, you can get to all these interesting revelations and different perspectives. That's one of the many values on, on Malick that that make him a filmmaker to look at no matter what you think of what he's doing on his last three movies, though it is reassuring that I've heard his latest film, he does not do this improv route, and he's trying for something, like, different, a different direction. Yeah, if I could ask, and where do you guys want him to go? Like, he's been making movies at a much faster clip. I think the movie you're referring to, Al, is about a World War II conscientious objector called Radigund. Or something Rad- to that Rad- effect. Rad- if okay. I if I'm butchering that name, I apologize. And my my under- that's that's correct. My understanding is that it is not an improvisational film. Right. Is that it is more traditional. And it has an entirely European right. cast, from mm-hmm. what I can tell. Um, and obviously, like an improv style, doesn't seem like it would fit the tale of a conscientious objector at all. Yeah. So I almost wonder what he's doing. And if just for hypothetical, is maybe he's going back to an older style. Is that what we want from him at this point? I'm going to give a. I'm going to give a crazy answer, but since my answer, my suggestion is crazy, I'm wondering, Brad, if you want to get one, a non-crazy one, because 
mine might just be a little too deranged for it. Well, well, first of all, I mean, we don't know that this is going to be a return True. to uh, how this could be an invention of a brand new style. No, exactly. Great. That, that we have, haven't seen yet. I, I do feel that this the, 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 the experiment of, of the last three films has been interesting. I'm not really, you, you know, I don't love any of them. I don't think I really hate any of them either. It's just something that I think is now kind of played out. Mm. So maybe may, maybe Malik does need to take a little more time between films. Maybe he maybe the the fact that that's been his traditional way of working has yielded uh, yielded better better results. Now with that this this movie obviously is not going to take that long it's supposed to come out uh by the end of the year so you know we're going to find out if he can what format this will take and we know whatever it is it will won't yeah. have taken him that long to create for me i think to the extent that there if there's like a specific problem in you know, for what malik's doing that can be kind of remedied in with like upcoming films i think it's that as you said in Song to Song, he has this level of energy and drive to like show these collections of scattered imagery and try and see what meaning you can get from those, right? I think where I think he falls especially short is that it seems to me that Malick in those three films has these go-to moves and he has a very limited tool set that he uses. He's, these moves he does all the time over and over again. Obviously, people know about the whole frolic thing, but there's also the sun going through leaf thing, the guy wandering around moping thing, the guy in the wilderness, the guy out in the wasteland where is where he needs to collect his thoughts thing. These are things that anyone who's seen the last four Malik movies knows exactly what he does, but he just keeps going to them over and over again without regards to how they affect the other 15 times he does this in the movies. So how could he, quote-unquote, fix that? Or what I would like to see... I would love to see him collaborate with either Werner Herzog or Errol Morris. Wow. Because both Herzog and Morris, but especially Herzog. The Herzog is obviously lo- obviously has an affection, a desire to show nature. But what Herzog and Morris have that that I found lacking in in Malick is they have a desire to always be seeking new things, new impressions, new details things that they've never experienced before and it might not work but they're going to go and like look at things and just grab new imagery they are always about expanding the tool set and seeing what new things they could do whereas like Malik is like trying to see drill more into what he already knows and how he can depict what he already knows but if he collaborates with Herzog he's going to get a whole new impression you know or he has the potential to do that and I, that would be wonderful because obviously Herzog's no stranger to great imagery himself. But he doesn't do these transcendent cinematic insights with the regularity of Malik. So that to me would be like the super, the super group of directors. I, I don't know if I have, like, I don't have a specific desire for what I want to see in his films next. I'm, I, I'm happy that he's pushing himself at this stage in his career. So I, I just want to see what he does next. One thing I, w- I would hope he does that I was encouraged by is that he actually made a public appearance at South by Southwest to promote uh, Song to Song. That's right. And at this stage in his career where he's 73, 
if he's going to be more available to us, that would be outstanding. I'd love to hear more of like how he sees his films and yeah. and, and if he's going to be more present and available to talk about them, that would be a tremendous boon at this point. Yeah. So so I, I don't know what I want from him as an artist, but if he's present as a person, all the better. Yeah, and that also would like help like with what I would want from him because the more feedback he has from people, obviously he has super fans who love everything that he does, but even those guys have things where like, oh, hey, you look at this this way, look at it this way. If you, the extent that he's more open to other people's point of view and does a less Godardian remove of like, this is my work and you take it or leave it, then the better off I think we'll all be. Because ultimately the best value to him of, of Malik is the way he can connect and make a universal statement for people. Yeah, I, I still think there's a lot of... Uh you know, he's a cliche, a lot of gas in the tank. There's a lot of, I'm looking forward to whatever he does next. And you know, that I think he's an authentic artist. I don't think there are many of them out there. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for what's coming next. And so like that just leads us to just a question. I want to just run for you guys. If you could take one image from Malik and his filmography and just broadcast it to people, what would like, what would like your image be or images? Well, I think the one of them I talked about already, which is the first image that comes to mind when you say the name Malik for me, is just the sh- shot of the half-buried Japanese soldier's face and the thin red line. Mm-hmm. So I'd offer that as like kind of my big choice. My my just if you want an example of what Malik is, I'd say that. Yeah. Um, if I can just augment that with a very minor choice. In To the Wonder, there's an early scene where Affleck and Kirienko are running along a beach. Yeah. And, and there's this beautiful scene where the almost the, the tide is going in and out, and the beach sinks and bounces beneath yes. them. Wonderful. And, yeah. and it's just a beautiful image of, like, you know, en- enjoying life and, and, mm-hmm. and, and capturing something that I had never seen before. And I, I would just go with, for purposes of tonight, I'll go with those two. Okay. okay. Cool. So for me, which scene from Days of Heaven would it be? Right. And There's you know what? Uh, there, there are so many options, but yeah. I might go with, with the first one that kind of was the, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore uh, scene, which is the, the ultra close-up of the locusts eating the blade of grass because that, that level of detail was spent on that small an image made large through the cinematography, I think uh, says it all about Malik. He's going to show us things we do not usually get to see. Right. For me, I think the ultimate image that comes across is from the thin red line. They're approaching a hill that they need to overtake. And before they attack, they're going to use artillery on the hill. So you get this just just amazing sequence where you see this hill, the wind that's moving the, the grass, and so are these waves, literally a wave of grass is moving across, and then suddenly the hill itself explodes, hmm. just in this perfect formation, these crowns of exploding dirt move all the way around near the peak of this hill, and just creates this level of instant chaos out of what was pure beauty. And to me, just nothing epitomizes the, the, the way Malik just expresses a transgression against nature in such a stark term. 
Like it just that sticks out in my head, just like and and just burned there. But then again, this this is that's just our favorites, and hopefully, uh, you guys listening in have had some inspiration to go take a look at some films of Malik in a new way um, or a different way, and got some uh, some interesting ways of looking at film out from uh, this director from. Our conversation. Um, I know we had a, a heck of a lot of fun going out and talking about it. And for whatever you can say about him, his work does reward further study, further examination. And I find it just rewarding when you see a guy who, the more you think about his work, the more different things you can get to think about and talk about. Peter, I'm so glad that you were able to go and join us out here and. Uh, Help explore out the work of Terrence Malick. Oh, this was an absolute blast, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Couldn't, couldn't have had more fun. This was great. Thanks for being here. Awesome. And then if, if you guys listening have some comments or suggestions or criticism about what we have had to say today or another podcast, feel free to go and contact us. We're reachable via the Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. We're available list through listening through iTunes at Directors Club Podcast and through the web at directorsclubpodcast.com. Much appreciated for uh, you guys listening. I uh, hope to catch you over on the next episode of the Directors Club. Thanks for listening.